we'll be spending the remainder of our time this morning in 1 Kings 19. So if you haven't had a chance yet, you have a couple of minutes till we look at those verses in more detail together to turn that way. Uh, today is the second week of a five-part series in the first of hopefully many spiritual practices that we're going to walk through together across the next few years. This one specifically is called Silence and Solitude. And those two go together. Those two become one practice for us. And we're going to talk today about kind of furthering that idea a little bit. We dealt with it some last week. Last week to begin, we did a very high-level review of our spring series of 10 weeks that we spent looking at what it means to be an apprentice of Jesus, not just a learner, not just a student, but the kind of person who begins to emulate Christ, who becomes like him in a way that's transformative to us. Um, We discussed last week briefly the factors of static formation, of dynamic formation. If those are ideas that are unfamiliar to you, you're welcome to go back and sort of cross-reference some of the work that we did earlier this year. Um, But as we worked through the way of Jesus, we we said these were three key thoughts about silence and solitude. I just want to rapidly remind you of this. If you weren't here last week, this will give you an on-ramp into where we're going to go today. We said, first of all, that silence and solitude are more than just Christian solutions to overstimulation. So we ought not treat these practices as if they're just sort of there like a a ripcord on a parachute or an emergency brake in the car where if we're freaking out and don't know what to do, well, we can always retreat and get quiet and God's guaranteed to fix all our problems and make us feel 100% better. Uh, That's a wrong understanding. That's a wrong set of expectations. We said that solitude of the two, of silence and solitude, solitude allows the after image of human contact to fade away. Um, We use the word picture of staring at the sun when you're a kid or having somebody with high beam headlights behind you uh, at night on the road and how when you look away from that really strong light source, there's still this sort of floating after image and that that's what other people do to us. That's not a bad thing, but it's true. It's something that we ought to acknowledge that when we have human contact, we can't just step out for 30 seconds and suddenly be emptied of all of that influence. It takes time for that to fade away and solitude is where we can practice that. And then silence brings our subconscious inner monologue to the surface in order to be dealt with. And we'll talk a little bit more about that at the end of today's message, but sometimes that inner monologue is not saying the kinds of things that we want to hear. Sometimes that inner monologue is negative, uh, it's derogatory, it's full of sort of poisonous statements and words that other people have said to us through the years, and we begin to repeat them to ourselves. And so we're gonna talk a little bit about how, though that's a very painful process, it's sensitive for us to navigate this very carefully, It's extremely important because until that inner monologue has been addressed, it's hard for us to do much more than simply change our behavior. And that usually sticks for a week or two. And then we're right back to that monologue sort of driving the train of our life. Between last week and today, we did a midweek teaching, if you haven't had a chance to see that, uh, just about how you get started with silence and solitude. I tried to break down silence and solitude into 10 sort of micro steps uh, just to give you a handle on where to get started with this if it's brand new and, and you don't have any idea where to go from here. Um, hopefully this is a help to you, especially if you're living at a very fast pace, maybe you have little to no margin in your schedule. And so the idea of adding something in that doesn't have a clear objective uh, is frustrating to you, is challenging, is something that you can't wrap your mind around. You can find that teaching on our website. Hopefully that will be a help to you. Now today we're going to spend our time in the Old Testament. Last week we looked at four, uh, which is just a limited uh, sample size of the many examples in Jesus' life, but we looked at four passages of scripture from the Gospels the New Testament stories of the life and times of Jesus of Nazareth, and we saw examples of him not only teaching his apprentices to go away and be alone for extended periods of time, but also he himself practicing that in the face of overwhelming need, in the face of overwhelming opportunity for him to advance the good news of the gospel, he would retreat from time to time and leave some people unaddressed in order to go and be alone with his father himself. 
Today we go way back in time, uh, over a thousand years, probably closer to 2,000 years back in history to the life of a man named Elijah. Now if I can give you some context, we heard from uh, 1 Kings chapter 19. Three chapters earlier is where Elijah's story really begins. Um, the book of Kings, First and Second Kings are called that because they're simply record books. Most of them are not stories. They're just sort of like, this guy became king, he was a bad king, he died in his 40s. His son became the king, he was a better king, but still not very good, he died in his 60s. His son became king, it just does that over and over and over again. This instance with Elijah is sort of a rare exception to the rule in these two books. So you're welcome that I'm not just going to read uh, ancient history records to you. We're going to actually engage with a story that I think is going to grab your imagination a little bit. But three chapters before we approach Elijah running away from Ahab, Ahab appears. He arrives as a new king in Israel. Um, his dad's name was Omri. Omri was a bad guy. Ahab is an even worse king. Uh, here's what 1 Kings 16.33 says about Ahab. Ahab did more to provoke Yahweh, who was the God of Israel, more to anger him than all of the kings of Israel who were before him. And it's not like Ahab was like the third king, okay? There's many, many, many people who come before him who have done terrible, awful things. And your Bible tells you and me that Ahab was worse, far and away that you could have put all the evil together of his predecessors, and he's still the worst king that Israel had had. Now, one of Ahab's biggest mistakes the thing that I think that really ticked God off the worst was that Ahab brought idol worship into God's people. Not I-D-L-E, like just laziness, like I-D-O-L. Like there were carved images of other deities that were sort of dreamed up by different people in power. And over and over again in God's word, he tells his people, I'm the only living God, I'm the only real God. And yet they're tempted to turn to other things because other, you know, carved idols don't really demand a lot of your character. They don't really get involved when your spouse and you are not getting along. You just make your grain offering or you drop some gold off at the temple and then it rains in a few days and you feel like the gods are happy and you can go on with your life. It's kind of how we interact with lots of the idols that we have in our lives as well. Ahab's endorsement of an idol, specifically a false deity who was all about destroying weak people in the interest of advancing the strong, this was to Yahweh, deeply offensive. The name of this particular idol that Ahab brought in was Baal. That's how you say it. You can say Baal if you want to. That's how it's written in your Bible, but you would have said it as Baal if you were there, okay? So Elijah goes to Ahab and he confronts him. He says to Ahab, this can't go on any longer. God's people have covenanted with God. We made a commitment to God that we would at least try a little bit to do things his way. And here you are blatantly going against God, spitting in God's face, bringing other gods into the middle of these people, setting up worship services and temples and other sort of like holy sites throughout the land. God's not ignoring this, Ahab. Something is about to happen because of the way that you have misled God's people. Elijah told Ahab that beginning at that very moment as they're having this challenging interaction, that there would be no more rain in Israel. Now this is particularly interesting because just like how God went after the Egyptian gods with the 10 plagues, each of those plagues was targeted at one of the main gods of Egypt to show that those gods were impotent and unable to have dominion even over their one little area of control that they supposedly had. That's what's happening here between Yahweh and Baal, okay? The, the Sidonian god, Baal, is a god of rain, of rivers. So what does God go for? The jugular. If you're the rain god and our god says your god can't make it rain, well, that's a pretty strong argument that your God isn't really able to do anything that he claims that he can do. Yahweh says the only exception to this drought would be if Yahweh chose to send rain himself. So he gets out ahead of the curve because he knows how Ahab is. He's a spin doctor. He knows that if it rains even a little bit, Ahab's going to say, see, our God is faithful and good and right, and Yahweh is nobody and nothing to us. 
Yahweh speaks up and says, look, when the time comes and rain does return, it'll be from me. So don't even think about trying to steal my thunder, no pun intended, at that point, okay? So Elijah delivers that message. Ahab is super mad, and Elijah leaves. He moves out of Israel to a place called Sidon. This is interesting and easy to miss if you're reading in 1 Kings 18, because Sidon is the place that worship of Baal originates. It starts there. So Yahweh isn't just sending his prophet away to keep him safe from an angry king. He is moving his prophet into the backyard of the worship of this other false god that Yahweh intends to bring down. While Elijah is there, he performs at least two really profound miracles, one of which is he lives with a widow woman who has almost no food, and now there's a drought in the land, and because of Elijah's presence in her house, her cupboards continue to fill up just a little bit every day. She has just enough flour, just enough oil to put together some bread every morning for her, Elijah, and her son. In addition to that, eventually her son gets sick and dies, because even if you have bread, it's hard to live without clean water. Once he passes away, the widow turns to Elijah and says, you never should have come here. The only reason my son died is because God is judging me. He's judging my sin. You, if you would leave, it would have left a long time ago, my son would still be alive. So Elijah cries out to Yahweh. Yahweh brings the boy back to life. And again, those two miracles demonstrate that even in the heartland of idol worship, Yahweh reigns over life, over death, over provision, and over the rain. So at the close of that chapter, Yahweh sends Elijah back to Israel to confront thirsty King Ahab on his throne, okay? Elijah and Yahweh have worked out this sort of uh, fight night title card between Yahweh and Baal. They're gonna set up this confrontation at the top of a mountain, altar versus altar, priest versus priest, gather all the people together, pay-per-view. It's gonna be any, everything anybody's talking about. And in that moment, Yahweh is gonna take down this other idol and his people will return to worshiping him like they're supposed to. So they do it. Elijah confronts 400 professional priests of this other false god. Um, and I don't know how to say this in a nicer way than this. Yahweh hands those priests their rear ends, if you know what I'm saying. Uh, you could say it like this. Yahweh was all out of bubble gum that day, if anybody knows the quote that I'm referencing. Uh, and he does his job and he does it well. Here's what Elijah does. He builds an altar, which is basically a stone table. On that stone table, they kill a cow, they cut it into specific pieces and set the pieces out in different ways based on the prescription that God gave his people a long time ago in the books of Leviticus and Deuteronomy. And then Elijah decides he's gonna take it to the next level because this is really all about rain, it's about water. Water is the dominion of this other false god, so we're gonna include water in the way that this showdown happens. So Elijah calls for jar after jar, you can think of those big five-gallon buckets from Lowe's, bucket after bucket of water to be dumped onto this stone table, onto the sacrifice which has just been made, soaking it in water, and then they dig a trench around the outside of the stone table, and the water runs off over and over and over again until that trench fills up with water. Elijah is raising the stakes, the idea being that either the false god will send fire down and he'll burn up the sacrifice on his stone table that his prophets set up on the mountaintop, or Elijah's God, Yahweh, our God, will send fire down and he will consume his sacrifice and then the people will know who's real. For Elijah to raise the stakes by soaking his sacrifice in water is sort of next level. The prophets of Baal don't do that. They do not participate in that. In fact, they do a bunch of weird stuff. It takes them a whole day. It's one of the best instances of sarcasm in the Bible because Elijah's making fun of them. He's like, maybe your God is asleep. You should shout louder. Maybe he's going to the bathroom and you just need to wait a minute and he'll be back. Like it's, it's a little bit funny. At the end of it all, God does what he says he's gonna do. He sends fire down and the fire is so hot that it consumes the sacrifice and all of the water. In other words, the figurative action that's happening here is our God consuming the dominion 
the very place of power of this other false idol. Now, how do you think Ahab felt about that? You think that was a good day for him? No, he's super mad. He hasn't seen Elijah in over a year. His people are uh, starving to death because along with the drought usually comes a famine. Now they have this showdown where Ahab's thinking, surely we're going to get this thing behind us. I'll get rid of Elijah and things will go back to normal. And then lo and behold, Elijah is right again. And Ahab, the most powerful man in this country, can't seem to do anything to try to control this guy who continues to speak truth to power. He just can't do it. He can't seem to manipulate Elijah enough to win. So at the close of this, Ahab is mad. His wife, who is from Sidon, the place where the idol worship originated, she gets involved. Her name is Jezebel. And they decide to put out an assassination hit on Elijah. That's the close of chapter 18 and sort of the background to what comes up at the beginning of chapter 19. So thankfully, the good news, sort of the side thought here, is that the people of Israel saw the showdown. They were moved to worship Yahweh. But that doesn't do a lot for Elijah in the whole not getting killed department. So we kind of zoom in on his life and we start to travel with him as he deals with the after effects of a very busy couple of days of ministry. So with that said, let's look again at 1 Kings 19, beginning in verse 1. You have some context, hear the word of the Lord, and maybe you can start to put yourself in our brother Elijah's shoes. So Ahab told Jezebel, that's his wife, all that Elijah had done. Now that means that's the famine, that's the drought, that's the showdown on the mountaintop, and that's the part that we didn't read today where Elijah actually hunts down these prophets of the false god and eliminates all of them because they're abusive and their whole system is about taking advantage of weak people. So Ahab tells his wife the whole story, how Elijah had killed all the prophets with the sword, and then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, and the messenger said this, so may the gods do to me, this is Jezebel, the queen speaking, and even more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. In other words, Elijah, you killed my prophets, and now I'm coming for you. You're not going to get away with this. I'm not happy that you did this. This doesn't make me look good as a queen. People are beginning to talk about how maybe you're right and me and my husband are wrong. We're not going to stand for this. This isn't going to be how this goes moving forward. So she makes it clear to Elijah, I'm going to do everything in my power, which she has quite a bit of power, to kill you. And Elijah runs for his life. Verse 3, he was afraid because he was a human being, just like you and I were. If you got a letter in the mail from the queen or the vice president or whoever that said, hey, I'm going to kill you as soon as I can. Just want to let you know that. This is your warning. Good luck. You would be afraid too, I think. I mean, unless you're crazy, I would be. So he arose and he ran for his life all the way to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and there he left his servant. Now, you don't probably know the geography of ancient Israel terribly well, but from Jezreel, where he was when he received the message from Jezebel, all the way down to Beersheba is about 100 miles. And Elijah just ran it on foot, and he went fast because he's running for his life. When he gets there, he leaves behind his assistant, and it's implied that he also kind of offloads anything else that he can live without. As a traveling prophet, he's somewhat of kind of like a, a migrant person, and so uh, for him to have left behind his pack animals, probably all of his food stores, most of his pairs of clothes, and he walks further out into the desert, away from civilization, alone. This is the beginning, if you're keeping track of this, of Elijah's solitude. This is his beginning, his entrance into what we're studying now, silence and solitude. Let's keep reading in verse 4 of 1 Kings 19. But Elijah himself went another day's journey into the wilderness, into the desolate place, the lonely place. Remember, we talked about that last year, that's, or last week, excuse me, that's where Jesus went every time that he went away to be with God. And Elijah came, and he sat down under a broom tree. And he asked, Elijah asked, that he might die. He said this, this is his prayer to Yahweh. It is enough now, Yahweh. I've had enough. Take my life, for I am no better than my fathers are. 
And then he laid down and he slept under a broom tree. And behold, a messenger touched him and said to him, wake up and eat. And Elijah looked and there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And so he ate and he drank and he laid down again. And then the messenger of Yahweh came again a second time and touched him and said, again, arise and eat for the journey, the journey that's coming is too great for you. Now, my friends, when we find Elijah in 1 Kings 19, the man is totally out of gas. He's exhausted. Um, Where I grew up in East Texas, we would have said that he is dead tired. That's like as tired as you can be. That's so tired that you stop being responsible for your actions. You're so tired, okay? Some of you work in blue-collar trades, and you know what this feels like. Those last two or three hours of the day where you're just waiting to fall into bed, that's what Elijah's dealing with. But it's not just a little piece of his day. It's his entire experience at this point. And I think he has every reason to be that tired. Two days earlier, he gave everything he had in that showdown on the mountaintop. Physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, he is fully engaged because he wants to serve Yahweh and he cares about the hearts of the people. If only God will do what he says, if he'll be faithful to the people, surely their hearts will change. This is an immense stress on Elijah. It was a make or break moment. And if God had not kept his ancient promise to be the God of his people, then Elijah would certainly be dead today. But now, because he confronted the king and queen of Israel, he may be dead soon anyway. Elijah, like any of us, when faced with a threat to our life, is afraid. And he's run for his life on foot in sandals across the desert. From my perspective, I relate to this. Maybe you will, maybe you won't. But Elijah, I think, is feeling the kind of letdown that comes after a huge expenditure of energy. I myself am a recovering, hopefully, I'm on my way, a recovering uh, workaholic, and I know what it feels like to pour every ounce of myself into a project, into a deadline, late nights, early mornings, no entertainment, very little human interaction, just grinding away at the task that needs to be done. One of the surest signs in my life that I have been exhausting, not just that sort of top-level energy that I get from sleeping at night, but that sort of deep energy stores that we all live with, I can feel that those have begun to deplete in the name of extra productivity because I get this huge letdown when I finish a big project. I don't actually feel good that I've completed it. The finish line is not a place of celebration. It's like I've been straining myself and pushing and fighting for so long that when I finally get there, I kind of look around me and go, is this it? All of that for, for what? You see, Elijah has entered into the first stage of a seven part paradigm that will emerge for us as we study 1 Kings chapter 19. And he creates a model for our own expectations in silence and solitude. Elijah is not just a little bit tired, he is what Ruth Haley Barton calls dangerously tired in her book, the book that I recommended to you last week. She writes this. She says, when we are dangerously tired, we may be numb to the full range of human emotion. While it may seem like a relief to be unhampered by the negative emotions that bog other people down, in this condition, the positive emotions become elusive as well. When we are dangerously tired, we don't feel much of anything, good or bad. On some level, we suspect that if we did stop long enough to experience our emotions, we might be overcome by feelings that we'd rather not feel. Maybe sadness over past or present losses. Maybe desperation regarding aspects of our life or character that seem unfixable to us. Powerlessness to choose the kind of life we know we're meant to live, unfulfilled desires and longings. We may be afraid that if we entered these unlit places in our souls, we might never come out. Church, in the last seven days, I've heard feedback from some of you that 
Silence and solitude hasn't been uh, terribly uplifting necessarily. Some of us, as, if we've taken time to remove ourselves from the presence of other people, as we've sat in the quiet long enough for that inner monologue to come to the surface, the kinds of things that we've been hearing repeated in our own hearts and minds have not been things we're proud of. They've not even been things that we want to believe. They're, they're primarily what we spend a lot of our inner energy fighting against, trying to resist, whether somebody who had authority over us in the past spoke that way to us, or we've just begun to believe that we're hopeless or friendless or destined to be lonely or never gonna achieve the thing that we feel would be most fulfilling in life. Elijah is there. Do you know how I know? Because he asked God to kill him. And it wasn't figurative language. He's not kidding. It's not here to just make us go, wow, Elijah's really having a bad day. He is asking the God who rules over life and death, a reality that is abundantly clear to Elijah as he has seen Yahweh take down this other idol repeatedly across the last couple of days. He turns to that God and he says, it isn't working, I'm not enough, let me die. I'm done. I don't like who I am out here in the desert. I don't have anywhere to go. I'm not terribly hopeful. If I go back into society, is that better for me? No, there's a hit out on my head. There are professionally trained assassins looking for me everywhere. There's probably a bounty for Elijah that's encouraging other people to let the king and queen know if they happen to run across him. This is a low point for him. He is crashing. He is in emotional freefall, running for his life after the longest stretch of public ministry that he has ever experienced. And his escapism tempts him to ask God to kill him in order to get out from underneath the crushing weight of who he is inside. That's what he wants to avoid. And so he enters into a time of solitude. You could argue that he did so against his will. He was driven into it. This is sometimes our experience, though I think it's usually better if we can make the choice to embrace silence and solitude on our own before our circumstances drive us crazy and leave us with no other option. But either way, Elijah found himself alone with God and in God's personal care. That's the piece that we can't miss. This isn't a mathematic equation. This is Elijah putting his life on the line and by saying to Yahweh, take my life away, he is also admitting my life belongs to you. Elijah won't kill himself. He's saying to Yahweh, this is your thing. You gave it to me. I'm stewarding it and I don't like it. So will you take it back? And what's interesting to me is right out of the gate, as soon as those words leave his mouth, the very first thing he does is just collapse and go to sleep. God carries Elijah into stage one of silence and solitude, rest. So if you're taking notes today, we're gonna work through today and the next two weeks, seven stages in the paradigm of silence and solitude. And I'm gonna try to help you understand in my own experience how navigating through these seven stages has been deeply fruitful and productive. And I'm gonna try to help you understand you may be bouncing off one of these stages and not getting any further. We're gonna discuss how we can navigate that. Elijah's life is the pattern for us. So for Elijah, he needs rest. That's step one. He's hit rock bottom. Physical sleep, food, water, sleep again, food again, water again, sleep again. This is the beginning for him of his time with God. It's handing his life over to God and saying, I'm gonna stop striving. I don't have anything left to do. There's no more gas in the tank for me to burn. I'm gonna have to just be and let you be God and I won't be God, even though sometimes I try to convince myself that I am. And I'm gonna rest here. And if that's enough for you, then I guess I'll wake up tomorrow. And if it's not, well, my life is in your hands. This happens at least two times for Elijah, but probably many more than that, okay? Now, here's why I'm telling you this. If you practiced silence and solitude this week, and I'm not gonna make you raise your hand, but I'll know because your spouse will look at you when I say this. If you practiced silence and solitude this week and you fell asleep, you're in good company. That's okay. 
In fact, I would argue that that's the beginning point for most of us. Most of us live so fast, so ragged, so busy, life packed out to the margins, that the first and most worshipful thing many of us can do is get a nap, eat a salad, and drink some water. That would be a starting point for us bringing our bodies back into some kind of alignment with God's will, acknowledging that we're stewards over this thing that we inhabit everywhere that we go. Some of us are so burnt down to nothing by the pace and the hurry of our lives that as soon as we create a little bit of margin, our own deep tiredness catches up to us and we just fall asleep at the dinner table, on the couch, trying to sit you know, in, the, in, in silence and solitude. We're praying, we're praying, and all of a sudden we're dreaming and then we're waking up and we're not really sure what happened and did that count and was that good? Okay, that's okay. Here's what I can tell you. You and I will not follow Jesus very far if we're trying to muscle our way into God's kingdom, hopped up on caffeine and addicted to activity. We're not gonna make it very far because Jesus wasn't overstimulated. He wasn't addicted to activity. He, more than anybody else in human history, had every right to pack out his 24-7 with ministry, with good things, with caring for people. And yet the model that he left for you and I, him our rabbi, we his apprentices, is that we slow down and we pull back, not in selfishness. Remember, these, these are not a Christian overreaction to overstimulation. This is a necessary and planned activity in our lives to get alone with the Father. This has proven true for me again and again, even in the lives of Jesus' apprentices, right? More than once, they couldn't even stay awake long enough to pray with him at night because of how overstimulated they were. If you want to be alone with God, you might need to start with a healthy meal, a glass of water, and some sleep. And here's another thing that I want to share with you. If that feels like admitting defeat to you, that feels frustrating that I'm telling you that that might be the starting point, that you can't bring your 24-7 always on-call work ethic with you into the desolate place with God, I think it's good. Acknowledge that that's what it is. Rest in any form is a kind of admitting defeat. It's an admission of my being finite. I can't do it all for everybody. Some of us would benefit from just saying that out loud once a day into the mirror or the rearview mirror of the car or to our spouse or our roommate to just admit one time out loud, I can't do everything for everybody today. That might be a great starting point for a little bit of exercised humility in our lives. By resting, we admit that we're finite, we admit that we're limited, we admit not only that we can't do everything for everyone, but that we were never meant to. So Elijah arrives at the broom tree and he rests. And that is where many of us need to start as well. Stage two of this seven-stage pattern comes to us in the next verse. Look at 1 Kings 19.8. So Elijah arose and he ate and he drank. He did the thing he was told to do. And he went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, which is another name for Mount Sinai, which is the mountain of God. So here's stage two of silence and solitude. I call it the wall. And that doesn't sound very encouraging, does it? I'll tell you why. Elijah walked through the desert for 40 days. It only takes the Bible a few words to tell you that, but don't miss the time that's going on in Elijah's life right there. Elijah has rested. He's recovered himself a little bit. He's stopped repeating this sort of suicide prayer that he has for himself, but he's not made it to the point where revelation is instantly apparent for him. He can't just oh God, now I had a nap and I'm ready to hear from you. God brings him on this journey and there's not a whole lot of interaction for these 40 days. God is not answering Elijah's prayer. He's not responding to Elijah's questions. He simply tells him, you have a long way to go. I'll go with you, but let's get going. Now it's caring of God. Don't miss that a few verses before the messenger from God said, Elijah, the reason that you need to go to sleep and have some food and have a glass of water is because right now you're not in any state to go on this journey. 
So don't skip over the rest part. That's why that's stage one. But when we get to stage two, that journey oftentimes isn't that fun, and it presents itself to us like a wall. Silence and solitude are supposed to remove the afterimage of human contact. They're supposed to bring our subconscious inner monologue to the surface. And here's what we know to be true about our brother Elijah. Ahab, the king, Jezebel, his wife, the 400 prophets of Baal, the people of Israel, the widow and her son in Sidon, all of these people whom Elijah has been close to have left an imprint on him, an afterimage in Elijah's heart and mind. And it takes Elijah at least 40 days to walk away from that afterimage, not just the physical presence of those people, but the emotional and mental toll that being with those people and caring for them has taken on him. As Elijah walks, he's left with his own thoughts. His despair and his fear have really only increased at this point. We'll find that out in just a minute when he answers God's question. They've clarified, though, in a way that's helpful. He's not just experiencing raw emotion now. He has thoughts. He has concepts. He has plans. But that doesn't necessarily mean he's feeling any better. He rested well in stage one, but now that he has truly entered into the journey that goes with God into the lonely place, he's beginning to bounce off of silence and solitude. And maybe that was your experience this week. Maybe you sat down for five minutes and it just felt like ramming your head against a wall. And you don't want to tell anybody that, right? Because that feels embarrassing. Aren't good Christians supposed to love everything that pastors ever tell them to do? No, not really. Okay, not at all. But for some of us, it just feels like we can't get through this. And maybe this wasn't the first time. Maybe you've heard other people encourage you to begin to pray more, to try to read your Bible more, to do this or do that. You really ought to be at the food kitchen once in a while. You and your family ought to be reading your Bible before bed at night. Good things that would benefit you, but you just keep bouncing off. It's not clicking. It's not sticking. It doesn't seem to be giving you any immense benefit. This is why stage two of silence and solitude is called the wall. Not because you can't get through it, but because it is not a soft place with God. It does not welcome you with open arms. It doesn't feel particularly warm. It is hard. And some people bounce off that wall and they never try again. They tell themselves they're just not the kind of person who can be quiet and alone with God. So they'll just skip this practice and they'll try the next one. But here's what you need to know. My friends, I'm telling you this because I love you. This is my agenda today is to share this concept with you. You need the wall in your life. You need it Unlike you need many other things in your relationship with Jesus, you need time and you need room to see and acknowledge who you really are. Nothing in your life is giving that to you. Even if you downloaded an app from the app store that's supposed to calm you down before bed, it's not going to lead you into your inner person and expose to you who you really are. You need this. You need to be honest with yourself. It's a necessary prerequisite before you can expect to ever hear from God. This is what the wall is all about. The wall is about enduring the passage of time without a clear objective. It creates the kind of question that asks, why am I doing this? What is this for? What is supposed to be happening? Why does this feel this way? It's about existing and listening and waiting and being honest with who I am and what I'm really all about. Those things become clear. When you and I arrive at the wall of silence and solitude, often we don't know what to do because there's no other place in our modern lives where we are taught or even encouraged to stay faithful in a relationship without constant communication. 
We feed off of making sure that everything is okay and letting other people know what we think and sending pictures to our spouses of the dog that lives at our house that our spouse already knows about and sees every day. And then they go, oh my gosh, that's the cutest dog I've ever seen. And you're like, it's our dog. And you celebrate that together and you can't believe it, right? And your kids smiled in a good way in their school pictures. And so now it's on every social media platform for the rest of their life with no thought to whether they would ever even want to be on the internet to that degree, right? We just, we live in sort of this rapid fire, immediate feedback world. And it's not all technology's fault. I think there's something in our wiring that craves that anyway, but we find it at an addiction-building levels in technology. Where we are physically unable to capture a moment in a way that generates positive emotional feedback, we don't know what to do with moments like that. We used to call things like that boring. That was a word we used to use like 30 years ago. You guys remember that last time you were bored when you just sat at the doctor's office and counted the tiles on the ceiling? because there was no sports to watch and there was no TV show you could access and there were no tweets to get upset about. You just sat there and you waited till they called your name and then you found out you had the flu and you went home and then you laid in bed for three days and you didn't do anything. It's a different world. Now what we do is we text our friends hundreds of times every day. Many of us tweet hourly and we gauge the success of our online opinions by how many people retweet or reply. We strive to zero our email inboxes every day. We reply as fast as possible in order to beat back the crushing weight of everything that we need to get done before we finally fall into bed just to scroll and double tap ourselves to sleep. So what are people like us supposed to do when we go out of our way to set aside time alone with God and we don't hear back from him right away? What are we supposed to do with that? What if he doesn't interact with us within the first five minutes of our time with him? What if it takes him 15 or 30 or a whole day or weeks, or 40 days in Elijah's case. You and I naturally lack the equipment to spend time with God at the wall, allowing the minutes to pass without anxiety and without a clear objective in mind or a goal to accomplish. Our inability to naturally embrace the wall is why we need the wall. We have to relearn how to share a moment with God without trying to capture any part of it for later, but to just be with him. It is the moments themselves with God, even when he is silent too, that are so deep and so rich and so good for us. And you will never know what that's like if you bounce off this thing and walk away. As an example, uh, many of you have heard of Dan Rather. He's an anchor for the CBS News Network for a long time. He once interviewed Mother Teresa of Calcutta, who you've probably heard of. And in the course of their interview, he asked her what she said during her prayers. It was known that she prayed for hours a day. And Dan just couldn't seem to think of any way to fill more than about 25 minutes of prayer up. And so he just asked her point blank, what do you do? What do you say for all that time every day? And she answered him and said, I don't say anything. I listen. And Dan made the face that you're making. So he turned the question around and he said, well, if you're listening, then what does God say? And Mother Teresa smiled in a very kind way and answered him and said, he doesn't say anything. He listens. And then Dan made an even more confused face didn't know what to say to her, and Mother Teresa followed up with this. She said, if you, if you don't understand that, I can't explain it to you. It just comes down to doing it. It's the being with God that is the objective. It's not where God might get me. It's not having to have some sense of triumph or breakthrough or conquering this sin pattern or this broken relationship. Those things will come, but it's being with God. That was the beginning of time, people. That, I mean, that's what we had that we broke was simply being with God to hang out with him and find out what was going on. And just like you have with your spouse or a good friend, sometimes we just sit together in quiet. And that's all we need is just to be together. This is how 
visceral our time with God is supposed to be, and yet instead most of what we do is rattle through our prayer list. And we ought to pray for people. We believe that God is listening and caring, but we don't create much room to do much more than that. We don't know how to just be and be thankful that we get to be with God, that the sacrifice of Jesus removed the sin that separated us from God, and that here and now we can be with him. We can sit with him and just exist as he exists. So we must allow silence and solitude to do their work, and our only objective at first must be to be still and to know that God is God and that we are not. And once the wall has brought our feet down to earth, has slowed our pace enough to breathe and think and interact with our inner self, then the real work begins. Let's read on now, verse 9 of 1 Kings 19. So after 40 days of wandering, Elijah makes it to Mount Sinai, verse 9. There he came to a cave, and he lodged in the cave. And behold, the word of Yahweh came to him, and Yahweh said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah answered and said, I have been very jealous for Yahweh, who is the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant. They've thrown down your altars. They've killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I, only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Elijah's beginning to step out of the wall into stage three. God's question brings Elijah through the wall. He brings Elijah into a space where now he's ready to deal with who he is. Elijah is prepared to deal with what he is carrying. The question, what are you doing here, Elijah, is a question that Elijah could have tried to answer 40 days before this. And I think if he had, then his answer would have sounded a lot like this. He might have said, God, I'm here to pray my prayer list, so if you'll just settle in, I want to tell you how much work you have ahead of you. Or he might have said, God, I've already told you. I don't know what I'm doing here. You did this to me, and now everything is terrible, and nothing will ever be okay again, and I wish you would just end me. Or he might pray something like, what am I doing here? I'm doing this new silence and solitude thing that my pastor keeps talking about. I don't get it. My life group is going to ask me if I did it, and I need to get through the next five minutes so that I can say yes without lying. That's why I'm here. I wonder if you hear yourself in any of those answers. I hear myself in all three. Pragmatism shallowness, confusion, being misguided, being in a hurry, just here to keep everybody else convinced that I'm a good Christian. But Elijah is different today than he was 40 days ago. The wall has done its work. Now he is rested. He's come out from underneath the shadow of his own fatigue, and he has had 40 days to get to know himself and to allow the afterimage of other people to fade away. Now his answer is emotional. Now his answer is raw and it's more honest than anything else that he has said to God so far. First he says, I have been very jealous for Yahweh. In other words, I've been pouring my heart out for you, God. That's why I'm here. I've done everything that you asked. I have sacrificed. I have given my life away. I have hardly ever thought about what I want or need at any point and for what. And then he says, the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets. Okay, that's what it sounds like. Elijah's saying things are really bad in Israel right now. My ministry, my neighborhood where I'm supposed to be a light and salt, it's not working. I don't have traction with these people. It doesn't matter what I say, what you give me to say, people's lives are not changing. No one is repenting, God. And then finally he says, I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. He's saying I'm the only real faithful follower left, and now everybody else just wants to kill me. For the first time since Elijah started following Yahweh in 1 Kings 16, three chapters ago, for the first time, Elijah admits what's always been true, that he doesn't always love working for God. He finally says it out loud. 
that it isn't his favorite thing. It doesn't feel terribly good. It's not been that huge explosion of encouragement that maybe he anticipated when he first sensed God calling him. Now, 40 days removed from his panic and his own reactivity, he clearly and loudly speaks what he feels, that he feels betrayed and he feels let down by God. And folks, if we don't spend time with that wall, we may never give ourselves the freedom to tell the truth to God. What's amazing about that is within our local church cultures, oftentimes we think that we have to give everything a positive spin or else people will think we're not Christians. God knows your heart. You're not spinning it for him, okay? If there's despair in your heart and you hide it at life group, you're only doing a disservice to yourself and other human beings. You've done nothing to move God's opinion of you. He knows what's existing inside of you. He knows what's deeply lodged down in the cracks of your heart that maybe other people have caused by being abusive or overly aggressive or neglecting you or disregarding you at different points. If you can begin to say those things, you can hand them to the God who can transform you, who will do something with those things, who will not leave you there. He never does. Over and over again, in the New Testament alone, Jesus encounters people with deep needs that they can't hide, and he fixes them. Because they step up and they say, this is who I am. I'm broken, I'm hurting, I can't go anywhere else. Seems easy when your skin's covered in lesions, right? Or you have a hot fever, or you've been bleeding for 10 years. Those are all examples from the New Testament. It's a little harder when you're dealing with a lot of self-doubt. When you have a deep and abiding anger that jumps to the surface when you're alone with just a select couple of people. When you feel like you hate yourself, and if people knew what you really thought, or who you really were, or where you really came from, they would reject you. But those are also kinds of sicknesses, And if we can bring them to God, if we can go through the wall enough to acknowledge that they're there and then decide to let ourselves experience that feeling that they're there and they're real, that is the beginning of those things changing, of going away. Elijah has finally begun to move toward the kind of transformation that comes from being in God's presence. He has been carrying grief with him. He's been carrying pain in his mind, in his body, in his spirit. And he is finally ready to let himself feel it all. There is no holding back. There's no fear of what others will do or think because he's alone, right? He's he's gone to a lonely place. This is part of why we need to do this practice. It's time to lean into the steady presence of God that Elijah became familiar with as he waited at the wall with God in silence. What Elijah gives you and I in verse 10 is a tool. It's an embodied acknowledgement of all that he's been bottling up. And a question that's worth asking ourselves is what unlocks that? What unbottles those emotions? It's one question. A question that Elijah could only answer truthfully after he had rested and after he had endured the wall with God, after he had learned to be with God without moving toward an objective. This is the third stage of silence and solitude. It is sensing your inner reality. Just picking up on what's going on inside of yourself. A thing that many of us, especially many of us who are men and many of us who are men who primarily work with our hands, have worked very hard over a long period of time to never do to never be able to truly interact with what it is that we're carrying with us. And if I can be blunt with you, our families and our society suffer for this reason. Our children, our young men suffer for this reason. We have to rest. We have to admit that we're finite. We've got to go with God to the wall. Maybe it takes 30 seconds. Maybe it takes us years. But when we come through to the other side, we will have learned things about ourselves that probably the people closest to us have known for a long time. But we will have learned them for the first time. And we will have begun to be able to experience what it means for those things to be true about us, to not have to run from them, to not have to cover them up, to not have to try to force our own version of healing, or at least put a smile on on Sundays and when we go to life group, but to be able to simply feel the pain that comes with being a person who's been broken, and you have been. Whether you've gotten really good at hiding that from other people or not, God knows it and I know it because you're a human being. And you know it too. 
Elijah arrives at the point where he can sense his inner reality. Here's what it's all about for him, acknowledging what he's carrying in his mind, his body, and spirit, letting himself feel what is already inside of himself. This is an exercise in acknowledging what God already knows to be true about you. You won't surprise him. God can't feel all of these things for you. Sometimes we, we wait and hope that that will happen. No one else can feel these things for you either. And this is impossible to navigate well if we have not taken the time to go through the wall. Learning to be alone with God at rest in silence, this is how God prepares us to feel the kinds of deep down pain and weight that we carry within us. So we rest, we wait through the wall, and then we begin to sense our inner reality. I know that's a lot of new concepts for you today, so that's as far as we're gonna go. We're gonna get through two more of the stages of this seven-stage pattern next week, and then we'll get the last two, two weeks from today. But as we move forward together, I'm gonna ask that you just consider these ideas, that you weigh this week what it might be like if you, could, if you could count the cost and choose to pay it anyway, if you could lean into these things that have been true about you for a long time and find a way to the other side so that you can experience freedom and healing, the kinds of things that Jesus promises. Our supplemental teaching this week, just so you can be looking forward to this, is gonna work through three things. Uh, we'll spend about 15 minutes. This will go up on our website on Wednesday. If this is a helpful tool to you, please take advantage of it. If not, you can ignore it. That's no problem. But we're going to talk first about the expectations that we bring into silence and solitude. What is it that makes the wall so hard for us to navigate? We're going to discuss where we pick those expectations up, what other people in our lives may have contributed to those wrong or bad expectations, and then whether or not keeping those expectations is helpful or hurtful in our pursuit of Jesus. So be on the lookout for that. Like last week, we're going to finish the way that we did last week. Okay, so if you hate this part, it's only 60 seconds, you'll make it to the other side, you can submit a connect card asking me to never do this again if you want to, and I'll at least read that connect card and think about it, um, but we're going to spend 60 seconds in quiet together, and I'll say what I said last week, if your baby screams their head off, then we're going to pray for you and your baby, and that's the worst thing that can happen to you, so don't worry about that, okay? Babies are awesome and God loves them. We're going to just be quiet for one minute, then I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll finish our service this morning by worshiping God in song. Your 60 seconds begins now. Father, we love you, and we're listening, we're trying to wait. <laughs> I think some of us feel like a tennis ball, just bouncing off the ground over and over again. Every time we turn our attention to this, every time we try to come into your presence, it just feels like the doors are locked and we can't get in. And so I pray endurance for us, God. I pray that you would give us a sense of understanding that learning to follow you takes a lifetime. It's not something that we ought to expect to master overnight or in a week or in a few days or even years, God, that it takes time and that who we are in any given moment that we approach you brings a whole mess of stuff to the table with us. 
So I pray today, God, that you'd give us a sense of your peace. I pray especially for any who are with us who have not yet made their mind up about Jesus. That as we discuss the, the deep work that can happen as we follow you, God, as we work with you, we participate in our own formation, that you would give some of us a taste for that, a taste of a life with God that they've never even heard before that could exist. I pray, God, that you give us great courage, that we would be honest with ourselves and others, that this, none of this would become a game for us to play, to win or lose, to score points or not, and that we would remember that the point of any practice is to come into your presence and stay there, God, to acknowledge what's already true, that you're here with us. So, Father, we love you. We trust you as we continue to sing, teach our hearts to, to admit what we know to be true, that you're good and you're for us. We pray these things in Jesus' name.